Well, good morning, church. All right. Wasn't last Sunday fun? Yeah, it's one of those unique times where we get to be together. It doesn't happen every Sunday, and so you can not, maybe not realize that uh, you bump into someone at a gathering like that, and you're like, oh, are you new? And they're like, no, I've been here three years. You know, and, and you begin to realize uh, the size of this family, and you don't always realize that. And there were at least 100 people missing uh, from that gathering. And one of the other reasons that I love gatherings like that is I get to give an, uh, more of an inspirational message, more of a maybe a motivational message, or maybe allow you to peek into my personal journal from time to time, and you can see some of the things that I've, I've wrestled with. But this morning, we're not doing that because, um, yeah, we're in a really tough book called First Timothy. And this morning, we're going to deal with a really tough topic, and it's going to sound a little bit like a political statement at first, and I need you to believe the best, and I need you to listen from beginning to end, because you know that that's not what we do here, but we have to talk about some difficult things from time to time, and this is one of those sections here, because, right, we don't skip anything, right? I need you to say it right, because we don't skip anything, and so we come across passages like this. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you're new with us, we're in a series entitled House Rules, where we are walking through the book of 1 Timothy together. And the book of 1 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul, to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, who is the pastor of a church in the ungodly yet very influential city of Ephesus. And when you look at it, uh, this church is located in modern-day Turkey, Turkey, but the purpose of the entire book is actually found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Where Paul writes, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions. Why? So that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So really, First Timothy functions as sort of the owner's manual of a church. It's kind of how it functions. It functions as sort of the the owner's manual of what does it mean to do life as a follower of Jesus together in the context of a local church in the midst of an ungodly city. That's the purpose of the book. But now in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we come to a very, very practical issue that we must understand in context in order that we don't, um, I, I think from some, sometimes we read a passage like this, I want to make sure you understand what it doesn't say. Because as we read it, we tend to read into it our modern view, or we tend to read our national history, the United States national history, into it. I'll read the two verses, and then we'll work it out from there. How about that? Paul writes in verse 1, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, 
They should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. <laughs> this is going to be fun, isn't it? And so when you look at the passage like this, we read into it our understanding of the atrocity of slavery. But let me give us just a little historical context for what it meant in that day. Because when you look at Roman history, there were four primary classes of people. First class of people was called the patricians. Patricians were the wealthy landowners. They were the ruling class. They were the political elite. If you wanted any role in government, you had to be from this class. And as a class system, there was almost no sense of upward mobility unless you married into it. And even that, in many contexts, were considered illegal. And, and, and so it was a set structure. You were born into it. You were stuck in it. And there was no hope to change it other than carve out the best living that you could in your class. Now, if you're born into the patrician class, it was all good because your family had power, your family had wealth, your family had influence, they controlled the government, they owned the businesses, they owned the, the larger farms, and they typically married within their class. The second group was called the plebeians, or uh, affectionately known as the plebes. And, and the plebes, they were not as wealthy, and they were typically the foot soldiers from the military or from the army. They're pretty well respected, pretty well known. Now, the patricians were also a part of the military, but they were the equestrians. They were on horseback. The plebes, they were foot soldiers. And the plebes typically served in the community by being small business owners, like artisans or, or shopkeepers. The plebes were innkeepers. And, and the, the plebes, they might have owned land, yes, but it was small plots. They might have a farm, but it would be a small farm. They couldn't run for public office. They could not marry typically outside of their class. So if they saw someone who was from the patrician class, they generally could not pursue that person as a spouse. Third category in the Roman Empire called the freemen. Now, the freemen were former slaves who had either purchased their freedom, which was possible. You could purchase your freedom, or they were granted their freedom by their owners. So they were not allowed to run for office, and they were typically craftsmen, and they typically worked with their hands. Builders, maybe uh, traders, or uh, farmhands, maybe midwives, things like that. Think more menial work. And the lowest class in the Roman Empire were slaves. And for slaves, their treatment uh, differed depending on location and the attitude of their master or their owner. So some were benevolent relationships where they worked in the home. Uh, maybe they helped with the family business. Maybe they took care of the children like a nanny. They might assist with travel or travel arrangements or making sure the family could travel appropriately. But others... They had a much harder time as they were used as very cheap labor with pretty rough working conditions. And regardless of whether you were in a benevolent situation or a more difficult one, slaves, regardless, had no rights, 
none. They could not vote. They could not speak in public. They had no power, no privileges in society, and they were typically prisoners of war, not necessarily ethnic slaves. When we think slavery, we think of a certain ethnic group, primarily an African ethnic group. The slaves in biblical times were not necessarily ethnic, and they came from two primary classes or two primary places. First, you were a slave because your area was conquered by Rome. How much of the world did Rome conquer? All of it. Rome conquered the entire known world. And so since they conquered basically everybody, there were all kinds of ethnicities in slavery. And the second primary reason you might be in this group is that you would sell yourself into, you would sell yourself willingly into indentured servitude. So if there was a debt that you could not pay, you would sell yourself or, or you were allowed to sell one of your kids for a period of time, for a set amount, in order to pay off that debt, until it was paid off. So an example, say you had a mortgage, and you could not pay it, you could say, here, take my son. And they will work for a certain number of years, for a certain amount of pay, but then at the end of that time, they're going to become a freeman. Those things were certainly common. I'm not saying they're right, but that was pretty normal during this time. And if you're a student of history, you know that slavery was common not only in Rome, but all over the ancient world. In fact, there is not a single ancient civilization that you can read about that did not have slavery. Slavery is a symptom of the dehumanization that comes as a result of sin. Let me be clear. Slavery is a symptom of the dehumanization that comes as a result of sin. And what happened is, through the years, slavery mutated significantly. It spiraled downward. It was already bad, but it's going downward. And in the 15th century, slavery became a little more ethnically focused, primarily on African slaves. And it was really driven by two things. It was driven by poverty because folks in that part of the world at that time, many of which they didn't have a lot of options, they were promised lucrative careers. They were promised incredible business opportunities doing whatever, and they were lied to, taken to the coast, and sold into slavery. The other thing that drove this change was greed. And so driven by greed, slaves were, as we know it through the history books, mistreated incredibly, that is such an understatement. I don't know how to use a better word. They were dehumanized. I, I couldn't think of words that would help us understand this concept. And later what happened is they, they didn't just promise them stuff. They just went into places and just kidnapped people, bulked whole cities, and brought them in and sold them into slavery. And through the years, slavery continued to mutate in the Western world. The Western Hemisphere, by the way, was the predominant landing spot for slaves all throughout this mutation of slavery. But what's interesting is 90% of the slaves that came to the Western Hemisphere ended up in South America or the Caribbean, not necessarily the United States. But here in our country, 
the early colonial slavery was almost entirely ethnic in nature. The early Americas certainly drove the industry of what was called chattel slavery, where people were considered property. They were considered less than human. And that continued for two, about 250 years. 250 years. They're estimating that about 4 million slaves were brought to the U.S. We had the Civil War with one of the major issues being slavery. And in 1863, thankfully, we had the Emancipation Proclamation. Then in 1865, the 13th Amendment was passed, abolishing slavery at least officially. And for, unfortunately, as you can imagine, 250 years. Folks, that's generational slavery. And then one day, you're free? Generational slavery. Much of the damage was already done. And the dehumanization continued on after 1865. It just happened in a, in a more sophisticated way for many years in what was called segregation or what we've seen in the Jim Crow South. Now, sadly, we have to acknowledge that many of those who held slaves and many of those who promoted segregation were evangelical Christians who participated in the atrocity of slavery. And if you've ever been to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., if you ever go there, you should stop by there. Pretty cool place. There's a special exhibit on the slave Bible. Did you know that they had a special Bible that they gave to slaves? Because I hope that you're like me. I find myself asking the question, how possibly could an evangelical Christian hold slaves? Because that feels so counterintuitive to everything the Bible speaks of. And when you look at the Bible that they were teaching from, what these ungodly folks did was they copied and pasted. They made a Bible. This is an actual Bible where they took parts of Scripture. They cut and pasted just like Microsoft Word, and they dropped it in, and they brought some parts in and amplified them and left other parts out. So they left parts in that reinforced and that affirmed slavery. And they removed the parts that spoke of our equality in Christ. And they gave the slaves permission to use this Bible to teach certain passages on obedience to masters, but they would not allow them to teach passages on the freedom we have in Christ, that we were all one in Christ, that there is one race, the human race, but there are multiple cultures and ethnicities. And so they just twisted and perverted the gospel for many, many years. And truthfully, the church oftentimes has missed our opportunity to be a part of expressing the shared desire of Christ to be Lord of all. Not Lord of some or Lord of most. In Acts 17, 26, it says, from one man he made all the nations, meaning, he made, meaning every ethnicity. So he is Lord of all. We're one race, the human race. There is a shared worth for all of us. There's a shared dignity. There's a shared value for all of us that we have in Christ, regardless of our culture or our ethnicity. We as followers of Jesus have not always lived that in our past. But that is the biblical invitation for us to share the love of Christ to all nations, all ethnicities, all tribes and tongues. Now, sadly, today, even today, slavery is not extinct. We would love to say that it is. It, 
It may be, I guess, extinct in our nation, at least legally, but it's all over the world still. In fact, some of the primary culprits today are North Korea, are Burundi, are China, Pakistan, India, especially as it relates to the trafficking and the slavery of children. Now you might say, Kevin, what does this have to do with 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1? Well, we have to understand slavery in the proper context and not read our understanding of the mutations into the text. Because the text is not talking about ethnic slavery or, or chattel slavery like you and I would feel. Because when I hear the word slavery, you probably feel the same thing I feel. When I hear the word slavery, there's an anger that rises in me because of the dehumanization that slavery brings to my mind because of our shared history. This is not that. So in order to understand the passage, you have to be able to separate the two. We have to understand the history so we know what this says in its context. So look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name in our teaching may not be slandered. So who is Paul speaking about in context? Well, there are people in that day who were serving their masters, and they're serving their masters to make a living. They're serving their masters to provide for their family. Because if you're a prisoner of war, you're, uh, and I'm a small business owner, it is illegal for me to give you a job if you're a prisoner of war. So how do you possibly make ends meet? The only way is you enter into indentured servitude. And so here, you're, you're serving their masters to support your family, or you're paying a debt, or for whatever reason, they are to serve their masters, it says, and to honor them so that, it says, the name of our God and our teachings, or your Bible might say our doctrine, will not be spoke against. And I want you to think about that. What the Bible is suggesting is that those who are under the authority of someone else who is providing for them a living, and in return, wanting them to serve in whatever way that is, they are to do so in a way that honors God and honors what the Bible teaches. So a slave who is a believer actually is not just serving their master, but serving God in the process. Now, you're going to answer right when I say this, by the way. The Bible condemns kidnapping, right? Good, just to make sure we're all clear. I mean, even in the book of 1 Timothy, right? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. So we know it condemns kidnapping. So I want to be really clear about that. But it's worth noting that the scriptures do not destroy or speak against social structures. Because wouldn't it be really easy if the Bible just said, hey, look, slavery should be condemned. We should condemn it everywhere in whatever culture. Wouldn't that be way easier? Because it would be way easier to preach. It'd be way easier to preach, but it doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. And the question is, why? And in fact, it's almost as if the Bible is not as interested in the destruction of systems or structures as much as it is in the renovation of the hearts of those individuals who are shaping systems and structures. Because the Bible takes the position, rightly so I might add, 
that if the Holy Spirit renovates the individual's heart, you will inevitably renovate the system. You will inevitably renovate the structures. So if you can change the individual, the assumption is that you can inevitably change the system. That's the exact opposite of what culture is currently telling us. Culture is saying the the systems and structures need to be burned to the ground, they need to be overhauled, and they need to be destroyed. And the Bible says that's not the fundamental problem. That's not your problem. Because you know what will happen is jacked up people will just create new jacked up systems and even more jacked up structures. The problem is that our hearts need to be renovated. Our hearts need to be renewed. And so this text begins now to shape the behavior of those who are serving regardless of their position and so invites us to put the gospel on display even while a slave. Because a renovated heart is more powerful than a renovated structure. It's the individual the Bible's always after. He's after our hearts. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, looking to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Go old, go new. Same thing. He wants our hearts. The question then in verse 2 is asked, well, what if your master is a believer, like not an unbeliever. What if your master is a believer? Verse two says, the slaves whose masters are believers should not show their masters any less respect because they are believers. They should serve their masters even better because they are helping believers they love. You must teach and preach these things. Which is interesting when pastors skip this section because I don't know, that last section seems pretty clear to me. That whether I like this section or not, it says I must teach and preach these things. So why would a believing slave treat their believing master with less respect? Paul says don't get mad at them for their position or expect some special privilege because you're a believer and they're a believer. And he says don't be lazy. Don't be lazy thinking that, oh, they're not going to call me out because, you know, they're, they're a fellow brother or sister in Christ. He says, don't do that. Don't, don't goof off and expect a favor. No, serve your master to the best of your ability. You love them. You are both serving God. You're both serving the kingdom. Now, thankfully, we do not have slavery in our culture any longer, so the question has to be, is there a modern application here? Paul does say that we're supposed to preach and teach these things, or is this just for that day and that age? And I would say, let me maybe explain it this way for a modern context. How many of you in this room, by show of hands, are employees? Okay, so you work somewhere. And so what does it mean to be an employee? It means you have a job to do. It means that you work because you have debts, because very few people are working just for fun. There are some weirdos like that. No, I'm just kidding. There are some people who are wired that way. But in general, we work because otherwise we would go to our savings account, we'd pull all the cash out and just pay off all of our debts. But that's not what we do. And so you work. And in so doing, you're working for food. You're working for your, your mortgage, maybe. Or you're working to provide for your family. And most people come to work. Most people come to work 
when they're told to come to work. So I said most, because some of you get really frustrated with coworkers who show up whenever they feel like it. But most people come to work when they're supposed to come to work. They take a lunch break when they're told to take a lunch break. Most people have agreed upon tasks that are laid out for them to do each and every day. As an employee, you don't necessarily get to decide what you do and what you don't do. And if you don't want that job, have a good time. Feel free to go. Go get a different job. But if you take this job, this is the job. And if you take this job, you might not like it, but you did agree upon it. You agreed upon a salary. So if you do this job, somebody said, I'm going to pay you X. And if you do a really good job, then I might pay you X plus. But this is the job. And it comes with a certain amount of vacation days. So if you agreed upon two weeks, but you wanted a month, that doesn't mean you get a month. You get what I give you and have agreed upon when you took the job. You are someone who works at the behest of someone else. It doesn't mean you're abused. It doesn't mean you're less than. It doesn't mean in terms of value or a person or your identity. It just means for a period of time each day, someone else controls you in many ways. And in so doing, you're called to honor God as an employee, to be the best employee you can be. And I would think, what would it look like? Just, I'll use just our city. What would it look like if in the city of St. Petersburg, Christians were known, Christians were known across the board to be the best employees, the hardest working employees, and the most faithful employees out there? What would that look like in our city? I wonder what questions would be asked of us. And so in, in some ways, there's an application for us here. But some of you in this room are employers. How many employers do I have? Good, okay, because first service, the employers were like, like, like they were shy. You know, it's okay, you're allowed to be an employer. Because an employer, I was an employer, I owned a company. Employers have taken on a financial risk. They've said, I'm going to allow you employees to come because if the employer blows it, it affects the livelihoods of lots of people. There is a weight on them that is quite unusual. It's part of the reason why everybody doesn't become an employer. And so what happens is that they pay you for a service, but you do work for them. And so some ways, employers, you're the boss, which means you get to determine for them their schedule. You determine for them their workload. You uh, determine for them the desired outcomes. You evaluate their performance, and you give them, at least on some regular basis, I hope, either a reprimand and maybe walking papers. I don't hope for that. but Or you give them praise and, and maybe a raise or maybe a bonus of some kind. And you say, hey, you're doing a great job. It's up to your discretion with that employee however you want. So essentially in this context, you're, you're kind of like the master. You carry the mantle of responsibility and weight as the master. So employees, you don't really serve your boss. And some of you are like, amen, right? That's, you're like, I do not serve my boss. That's, some of you said that, but that's true. But you do serve the Lord, amen. You serve the Lord. 
In whatever job you have, you serve the Lord, and he deserves your absolute best every single day. One of my first jobs starting out when I, I didn't own a computer company, but I worked for a computer company on the corner of 4th Street and 62nd. You can throw a rock almost and hit that place. And when I started there, there's a guy that trained me in, in that job. And one of the things he said is every single day at the end of the day before you go home, you are to cut down all of the computer boxes and flatten them and throw them in the dumpster. And then he said, you don't really have to. Because we have a cleaning company, and if you forget, the cleaning company will do it, and no one will know. So yes, cutting down the boxes every day, putting them out, is on the checklist of things to do at the end of the day before you go home, but no one will ever know. Just let the cleaning company do it. And so what do I do? And what I realized was, I don't work for that guy. I don't work for that boss. I work for the Lord. And if the job calls me to break down boxes, then I'm going to break down the boxes every single day because it's not the boss whom I serve. I'm going to be the best box breaker downer, if that's even a word, of all the box breaker downers at the company because I'm going to break down the boxes. Why? Because it's the Lord whom I serve. And what I had to learn was my expression of worship to God was my service to my boss. I'm doing it all for the glory of God. Second thing for employees was, I I think so many people look at me and say, Kevin, I want opportunities to share Jesus at work. You know what my answer is? Do your absolute best And people look back at me and say, Kevin, all that does is make them jealous. And I would say, you have a misunderstanding of what I just said. Do your absolute best, meaning be faithful. Be consistent. Be dependable. Be kind. Be generous. Be patient and pray every day for your coworkers and watch what God can do. And and some of you are like, well, I'm in like... Maybe I'm a teacher in a public school system, or maybe you're like, I work in a governmental industry. Let me tell you, God is not up there going, I can't figure out how to break into that place. Boy, those schools and those, those governmental offices are so hard. They've got like an HR departments that are buckwild crazy. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, you know what? Trust me. Just every day be kind. Every day be generous. Every day be faithful. Pray for your coworkers, and you just watch what God can do. The barriers to share are dramatically fewer for those who work as if they're working for the Lord. Third thing I think as employees is our work ethic honors God. Work hard. And our attitude while doing it matters. Listen to Ephesians 6 and think here, employee, employer. It says, do your work with enthusiasm. Work as if you're serving the Lord, not as if you're serving only men and women. Remember that the Lord will give a reward to everyone, slave or free, for doing good. Your heart at work matters. Work as if you're offering it to God. Do it with a a right attitude. Do it with with a good attitude. Do it with 
diligence in whatever you do. Our work ethic honors God. Not just for us parents, teach that to your kids. We don't get to blame the next generation without looking in the mirror occasionally. Third, I, I think we talk a lot about what it means here to be an employee, and it's hard. You, know, you go to a job maybe you don't love. You go to a job because it's paying the bills. Maybe you're doing multiple jobs. But I want to tell you, it's, it's hard doing this. I'll, I'll give you credit. But being an employer isn't easy either. Being an employer to carry this weight of responsibility that others don't. To know that if you blow it on the back end, so many people go home unemployed. So let's talk about employers. Let's, let's bring them in on the fun. So I'd say first, employers, you need to treat your employees as unto the Lord. They are not there for you to abuse, to overload, or just to lord your authority over them. Ephesians 6, again, masters in the same way, be good to your slaves. Do not threaten them. Remember that the one who is your master and their master is in heaven, and he treats everyone alike. Colossians 4, masters, give what is good and fair to your slaves. Remember that you have a master in heaven. We need to treat employees with respect, and we need to treat them sort of the golden rule things the way we want to be treated. Second, employers, we need to pay them what they're worth. We need to pay them what they're worth. Jesus teaches that a laborer is worth his wages. Leviticus 19 talks about robbing what's been promised. Deuteronomy 25, Proverbs 3, pay them fairly, pay them what they're worth, pay them what you promised, and pay them when you promised it to them. Employers, there's a responsibility on you here biblically. And third, I'd say employers, much like employees, we need to see business as an opportunity for ministry. God doesn't need your widgets. He wants you to bring him praise and glory as you make widgets. Trust me, he's got anything he needs. He's got it all covered. There's nothing he's in heaven like, wow, good thing they're working there because I got a shortage over here. Got something God never said. So remember, your business is different than you think because we tend to think bifurcated. And you're like, what does that mean? We tend to think uh, Monday through Saturday is secular, and Sunday is sacred. That's bifurcated thinking. That we think that somehow there's a secular and, and there's a sacred, that somehow those are different, but they're not. When you go grocery shopping, that's sacred. When you get your hair cut, Sacred. When you interact with your kids at the dinner table, sacred. When you're at work, sacred. Everywhere, everything is spiritual. And so employee or employer, people are looking at you and you have the opportunity to show them the gospel. But when they look at you, what are they seeing? And so, employee or employer, how are you doing with your language at work? How are you doing in the gossip department? 
gossiping about your, your, your colleagues, about your boss, or bosses, you're asking for advice, but all you're doing is gossiping about your employees. How are you doing relational with your colleagues? When your coworkers go home at the end of the day, and they talk to their spouse about their day, what role do you play? When they get home and they say, wow, today was terrible, and Sally made it even worse, or you know what, today was terrible, but Sally prayed for me. Sally encouraged me. Sally showed up for me. Sally was kind to me. Sally was faithful to me. What, which of those scenarios is happening with you at work? Employee or employer, how's your integrity at work? How's that expense report coming? Let's pull them all out and share. Is it honest? You fudge a little bit. Are you going home a little early saying you got an off-site meeting? And how's your attitude? How's your work, your work ethic? Because if you're lazy at your job, it reflects Christ. If we're not doing what we do to the best of our abilities, we're not honoring the Lord in whatever it is. As you think about you at work, now, it's really easy to think about the person next to you at work. I know how, what you should do. I can tell you right now the three things you need to fix. No, no, no. When you look in the mirror and you talk about you at work, my challenge would be, are we as a church willing to pray about this? Because me included, because you realize I'm an employee here and I'm an employer here. And I get it wrong some days too, but are we together willing to pray? Pray things like, Lord, what are my issues? What are my issues? What is it in me you'd like to change so that I honor you in everything I say and do at work? Pray that prayer. That's almost as bad as praying for suffering, right? You know, you pray for that, you better be careful, you know, because he will grow you, you know. Be, be careful what you pray for. You want to pray that? How can I love my coworkers better, Lord? Or how can I love my employees better, Lord? How can I reflect you, Lord, tomorrow in a way that brings you all praise and honor? How can I work tomorrow as working for you? Lord, help us no longer live bifurcated lives, separating the secular and the sacred. May we live, may we live every single day like everything is sacred. God, help me tomorrow live like it's all for your glory. And God, would you renovate and renew this heart every day, bringing change to me so that I can bring change to the systems and structures that dishonor you in this world. May you, God, not me, be on display everywhere we go. That's the prayer, church. Why? Because according to Scripture, that's the house rules.